You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Best as I can tell, the scam worked like this. Downtown Chicago, say 1910. The Khan finds his mark. A couple, tourists, out to see the sights. He tells them he's got the inside scoop, a secret attraction so spectacular that they've just got to check it out. He'll take them to it right now, if the gentleman has a nickel. The couple agree, and the man forks over a coin. They probably don't believe the pitch. More likely, they're just interested in seeing how the trick is done. Or they want to go home to Racine, Wisconsin, Wilmingham, Delaware, Eudora, Kansas, with a story to tell about the time they got taken for five cents by a real Chicago city slicker. But they probably don't believe the pitch. They couldn't. It's too ridiculous. Nobody could think it was on the level. A submarine in a river in 1910 right smack dab in the middle of downtown Chicago? They have to see the trick, the twist, how the grinning gouger will make good on his offer. And who can blame them? Don't you want to know the trick, too? The man walks the couple north towards the river to the Clark Street Bridge, or the Dearborn Street Bridge, or maybe the Rush Street Bridge. He gets one step ahead, spins on his toes, arms outspread, to introduce the Chicago River. Here it is, he barks, Chicago's own submarine. The couple strain and squint, but all they can see is the dirty brown water, 20 feet deep and 150 feet across. There's no submarine to be seen. Well, of course not, the flim-flammer responds, gearing up for the punchline. Wouldn't be much of a submarine if it floated where you could see it. The couple chuckle, shake their heads, walk away. They should have known better. And they did. They hadn't really believed it. They just wanted to know the trick. But hold on, because we haven't hit the prestige yet. As the couple walks back toward State Street to shop or see a show, and the bunko artist struts off to find his next victims, there's a secret irony lying at the bottom of that muddy Chicago River. Unbeknownst to either the grifted or the grifter, there was, in fact, a submarine hidden in the waters by the Clark Street Bridge, or the Dearborn Street Bridge, or the Rush Street Bridge. It had been there since 1900, or 1895, or maybe even 1851. A primitive yet space-aged, 40-foot-long, submersible bullet. And inside were two skeletons. 
of a man and his dog. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. More than a century ago, this mysterious submarine was pulled from the river, right in the middle of downtown Chicago. In all the time since, nobody has been able to figure out where it came from, who built it, or who was inside. For the last two years, I've been trying to figure out the answers to those questions. And for the next few weeks, I'll be telling you the story as I've been able to piece it together. I wish I could tell you I had this solved. There have been a couple of times where I thought I did. But right now, as we begin, the only thing I know for sure is that it is one of the strangest stories you've never heard. The mystery of the fool killer. Episode 1. Tears Falling from the Sky. There are a lot of things we need to know to understand the fool killer. A brief history of submarines would be helpful, and of the Chicago River, too. There are a half dozen biographies that need telling, a little engineering primer, and a curious sidebar about Arctic exploration. But the thing we need to get out of the way right up top is the story of the darkest day in Chicago history. If you're not from Chicago, and even if you are, you probably think that means the fire. Erase all but the top two pieces of trivia from historical memory, and what's left to say about Chicago is that one, Al Capone was here, and two, it burned down once. The Great Chicago Fire is so integral to the city's identity that it's even there on our emblematic flag. Of the four six-pointed stars that stand on it, three stand for accomplishments. The first permanent settlement at Fort Dearborn, the Columbian Exposition of 1893, and the other Columbian Exposition of 1933. The fourth star is the fire. Understandable. The Great Fire of 1871 burned down almost the entire city and killed 300. Chicago rose from the ashes, building a new city out of stone and brick that became the architectural capital of the world. The Great Fire gave Chicago its grid system and gave the world high-rise buildings and public libraries. Ask me about that later. But October 8th, 1871, isn't the darkest day in Chicago history. That dubious honor goes to July 24th, 1915. Before we talk about the Fool Killer, we have to talk about the Eastland. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Bobby Fornero was 21, dapper, sharp-eyed, and ridiculously in love. July 24th was going to be a big day for everybody who worked at Western Electric Company's Hawthorne Works factory. Usually they had to work Saturdays, but not that day. 
Instead of reporting to the floor to make telephones, some 7,000 Western Electric employees were getting a picnic in Michigan City, Indiana, and a boat ride from Chicago across the lake to get there. The trip was scenic, and the picnic had grown from a modest event some years previous into a grand annual jamboree with rides, games, dances, swimming, food, and drink. Older workers brought their families for a rare day of relaxation. George Sindelar brought his wife, Josephine, their five children, and Josephine's sister, Regina. The younger and single workers were decked out in three-piece suits and huge billowy dresses, summer colors of pink and blue and violet, like flowers in bloom. 19-year-old Bessie Dvorak wore a new gown and had to beg her parents to let her attend by herself. In a world of six-day work weeks, chaperoned outings, and crowded family housing, the annual Western Electric picnic was known as the rare opportunity to meet and flirt and maybe fall in love. But Bobby Fornero didn't need that. He was already in love. And when he got her to Michigan City, he was going to pop the question right there. At 7 a.m., passengers began to board the SS Eastland, right upriver from the Clark Street Bridge, the same place the conmen would take the tourists to see the submarine, 150 feet across, 20 feet deep. 50 passengers a minute crossed the gangplanks onto the decks of the Speed Queen of Lake Michigan, the twin-stacked steamship that would take the first 2,500 to the celebration. There goes Bessie Dvorak, and there goes George Sindelar, and Josephine and their daughters, and her sister. But not Bobby, and not his soon-to-be fiancé. They are running late. As the Eastland stood moored to the harbor, hundreds descended into her lower decks to escape the rain, to listen to the band, and to dance. At 7.10, the Eastland herself began to sway gently along to the music. Port to starboard, starboard to port. Bobby Fornero and his lady love, whose name is lost as so much was lost, barely managed to scuttle on board just after 7.20, 10 minutes before the ship was to depart, and three minutes before the crew began running the other way, past the young lovers, a frenzy of shipmen, climbing upwards for the open air as the Eastland's gentle rock ungentled. At 7.28 a.m., July 24th, 1915, Still moored to the harbor, anchored in the Chicago River, amid thousands of onlookers from the markets and newspaper offices and factories that surrounded the Clark Street Bridge, the SS Eastland turned over onto her side. Jack Woodford, reporter for the Chicago Examiner, couldn't believe his eyes. He said it looked like a whale turned over to take a nap. A young Carl Sandberg was on the scene, too. He said the Eastland rolled over like a dead jungle monster shot through the heart. Other witnesses described a single, deafening, collective scream, and then silence. When the Eastland capsized, it was as if a vengeful god reached down through the rain clouds and with one dispassionate gesture cleaved the living from the dead, like a Thanos snap. There was no grand struggle, 
No James Cameron escape sequence, just survivors and victims. Anyone who'd been below decks on the port side were drowned in minutes. And if not drowned, crushed. By the piano as it fell across the floor, or the refrigerators, or by the other passengers. Or in the crunch at the bottom of the flooding staircase as the panicked masses tried to escape. George Sindelar died there beneath the decks, along with his wife, Josephine, and her sister, Regina, and their five children, 15-year-old Adela, 13-year-old Sylvia, 9-year-old George Jr., 7-year-old Albert, and little William, just three. Bessie Dvorak's parents, Anna and Thomas, were sure she would be all right. She was such a strong swimmer, after all. When they identified her body, they saw the claw marks on her legs from the swimmers who were not so strong, who dragged her down in their desperation to be lifted up. Luckily for Bobby Fernero, he'd been late and didn't have time to get beneath the decks. And luckily for Bobby Fernero, he too was a strong swimmer. He managed, somehow, to swim underneath and around the crooked bow, past the debris and the clamoring, suffocating madness and up to the surface of the filthy industrial river. But when he wiped his eyes and looked around, something was missing. Someone. Immediately, Bobby submerged again, looking for her. Then he came up, alone, and down again, and up, and down, and down, and down. And that is how Bobby Fernero drowned along with his soon-to-be fiancé who would never be, whose name has been lost as so much, as so many, were lost. On July 24, 1915, surrounded by onlookers and shoppers and reporters, just a few lengths away from dry land, in 20 feet of water, 848 people died in minutes. This is a story of tragedy, but it is also a story of bravery, of heroism, of people coming together. When the Eastland keeled, hundreds of people on the upper decks were flung clear into the river. They were spread so thick over the surface that you could barely make out the water from the shore. In their three-piece suits and huge billowy dresses, summer colors of pink and blue and violet like flowers in bloom, they struggled and screamed. One block east of the boat, Lawrence Northrup sat ready to raise the Dearborn Street Bridge for the Eastland to pass through. Instead, he saw her turn and immediately jumped out of his station and into a lifeboat, rowing furiously towards the victims. He rescued 23 from drowning. Abraham Blumenthal, a newspaper boy selling along the bridge, jumped in and began to pull distressed swimmers to the side. On the steamer Petoskey, moored behind the Eastland, a young lookout named Peter Boyle dove from the bow to rescue a woman who had been dragged down by her heavy petticoats. She was saved, and he was lost. With the Eastland on her side and filling up, there was a fear that the water would hit her boiler and explode. Still, every boat that could find clear passage made full steam to the scene to aid in the perilous rescue. 
First was the tugboat Kenosha, which quickly worked its way between the Eastland and the wharf, forming a boat bridge to carry the stranded survivors clinging to the hull of the overturned ship to safety. The tug Indiana came next, pulling people from the water by the score. The steamer Theodore Roosevelt threw life preservers, released small boats, scooping out dozens. Upriver a stretch was the Dunham Towing and Wrecking Company. At its wharf sat the tug Rita McDonald, without a captain or crew. F.D. Fredericks, superintendent at the company, decided he'd figure out how to pilot her on the fly. He and two of his workers made their way to the Eastland and saved 50 lives. On land, neighbors and companies and friends assembled to offer what they could. Blankets, clothing, soup, and bread. The nearest hospitals were quickly overwhelmed, as were the streetcars, so nurses began flagging down dozens of passing cars and asking drivers to take survivors to safety, to hospital, to home. Not a one refused. In less than an hour, the rescue effort was largely transformed into a recovery. The boats that had pulled the living from peril now pulled the dead from obscurity. Nets were strung across the mouth of the river to catch the victims being pushed out into the lake. Welders arrived and began cutting into the sides of the hull, hoping to rescue anyone who might be trapped in an air pocket within. The first, Elmer Nelson, was flagged down by Harry Peterson, the captain of the Eastland, who had been able to walk right off of his ship without so much as wetting his shoes. He told Nelson to put out his torch and stop ruining his ship. The crowd of onlookers, angered by his callow selfishness, called for him to be thrown into the river and drowned. They were only prevented from doing so when Chicago police arrested him and had him hauled off the scene. Dozens were rescued from within by the holes cut by the welders. The most dangerous and harrowing recovery duty fell to the dozens of divers who were asked to scour the bottom of the river or, worse, transverse the submerged bowels transformed into a labyrinth of wreckage and corpses. Charles R.E. Bowles, a 17-year-old amateur swimmer, made that terrible trip in just his swim trunks. Hour upon hour, he descended deeper and deeper into the wreck, pulling out 40 bodies and only stopping when he was forced to. Just let me rest a bit and I'll go back, he pleaded through exhaustion and psychic toll. Morris Jorgensen went down in a diving helmet, spending three hours inside the lower deck, crammed with hundreds of dead. When he finally surfaced, he climbed on top of the heap and began screaming. Two policemen beat him unconscious to keep those around his flailing mania safe. The divers held out hope that they might stumble upon survivors, but those hopes were largely in vain until three in the afternoon when a diver surfaced and a high cry let out. It was a baby, miraculously saved. The crowd yelled, the crowd hugged, the crowd cried. It was one brief and terrific mercy, the last the Eastland would deliver. The most noted diver on the scene, and the one most critical to our story, was William Deneau known as Frenchie, or, after that day, Captain, a title seemingly given to him by the city in deference to his efforts. The 25-year-old diver worked in the hull and on the riverbed through the day and into the night. Depending on when you asked, Frenchie would say he recovered anywhere from 100 to 250 bodies, all by himself. But Frenchie, 
as we'll learn in the course of things, isn't the most reliable source. Eventually, the dead were assembled at the 2nd Regiment Armory. Around midnight, authorities began admitting people, 20 at a time, to walk the long rows, 85 bodies deep, in search of loved ones. Identification took days. The whole city of Chicago was shut down in mourning, aside from the Western Electric Company, who ordered the Eastland's survivors to report back to work the next morning. On Wednesday, July 28th, the funerals began, in such numbers that there were neither hearses, coffins, or even graves enough to accommodate them. Trucks were commandeered from Marshall Fields, women were laid out on fainting couches, men were borne to their burials on stretchers. By the end of the night, gravediggers had buried 700. The Sindelar family were delivered to Bohemian National Cemetery in white caskets, stacked one on top of another tied to the back of a Model T. On Thursday, the last body was finally claimed. Body number 396, who the city had taken to calling Little Feller, was carted to a funeral home without family, but a couple of kids there recognized him as their friend Willie. No one had come to find him because his entire family had died. His grandmother finally affirmed his identity, He'd been wearing a new suit for the picnic, and it came with a spare pair of pants that she was able to match to his. He was buried on July 31st with his mother, Agnes, father, James, and sister, Mamie. More than 5,000 people from around the city came to pay their respects. He was seven years old. During the whole week, the rains that had begun just before the Eastland keeled persisted. The people of Chicago said it was like tears falling from the sky. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Whether you're curious about a specific topic, looking to better yourself, or just prepping to beat Todd at Trivia Night, The Great Courses Plus has your back. The Great Courses Plus gives you instant and unlimited access to thousands of lectures from top engaging experts on anything from secret societies to travel photography to exoplanets. I am absolutely in love with this. 
For years, I've been pretending to understand information theory because it seems interesting and makes you sound smart. But now I'm actually learning about it, and not just the basics, but with hours of streaming audio and video to truly master it. They've even got a course that constant listeners might really dig, What Einstein Got Wrong. This thorough, six-hour lecture series uses Einstein's blunders, shortcomings, and mistakes to contextualize his brilliance and the effect of his ideas upon the modern world. And it does a better job of explaining the title and logo for this podcast than I ever managed. Get the excitement of learning cool things from smart people by signing up for The Great Courses Plus. They're offering constant listeners an amazing deal. Three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's only $10 a month. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant to see the full details and sign up. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. One word for three months of unlimited access for 30 bucks. And I'll get credit for sending you there. Go now. Expand your mind. Seek enlightenment. Crush Todd. And by BetterHelp. Everybody has something in their life that gets in the way, in the way of success, relationships, even happiness. BetterHelp Online Counseling is there to support you. With BetterHelp, you get access to a counselor personally matched to your needs, depression, family conflicts, self-esteem, grief, even sleep troubles. And if you're not happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. They've got 3,000 professional licensed therapists across all 50 states and available worldwide using desktop, mobile web, Android, and iOS apps. With BetterHelp, you connect online at your own time and pace with video, phone, chat, or text services, all of them safe, private, secure, and confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option, and because you're a listener to this show, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code THECONSTANT. It's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com theconstant Fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love and start communicating with them in under 24 hours. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. What could have caused a 265-foot-long steamship to roll onto its side while still at harbor on a calm river in 20 feet of water? How could more than 800 people die just feet from one of the busiest downtowns in the world? As the news of the Eastland disaster spread around the world, and as the city of Chicago woke from its morning, the list of theories and possible culprits grew and grew. It would take decades for the various inquiries and court cases to settle up, but within a few meager weeks, it was clear that there was plenty of blame to go around. Captain Harry Peterson had been arrested for his own safety after he protested the cutting of holes into his hull, but he was soon followed by several other crew members, including Joseph Erickson, the chief engineer. Peterson and Erickson were indicted for manslaughter by a Cook County grand jury, along with four of the officers of the company which owned the Eastland. They were all based in Michigan and successfully fought extradition to Illinois with the help of a legal team headed up by the great Clarence Darrow. While the courts fairly quickly cleared all six men of criminal responsibility, each of them plays a key part in understanding how things went so terribly wrong that day in July. 
First, let's examine the owners. The Eastland was first floated in 1903 as a cargo ship to move hauls of fruit as quickly as possible across the lakes. She was converted to carry people pretty quickly and sold and resold from one company to another, first in 1906, then again in 1909 when she served as a passenger liner between Cleveland and Cedar Point, before finally falling into the hands of the St. Joseph Chicago Steamship Company in 1914, just over a year before the disaster. In all of that time, and in all of those capacities, the Eastland had never been properly tested for passenger service. When questioned about the capacity and capabilities of the Eastland, one of the officers at St. Joseph said, I just cut blank checks. At three times in her service history, the Eastland had listed and taken on water, the first recorded incident having taken place all the way back in July of 1903, just months after she was converted for passenger use. It listed again a year later with 3,000 people aboard. In 1906, the listing had been so bad that passengers filed legal complaints against her then-owners. Rather than deal with the problem, they sold it off. The Eastland was top-heavy even as a fruit hauler, but as a passenger vessel with thousands of day-trippers mobbing the upper decks, she was downright hazardous. This was known not only to the various people who'd owned and crewed the ship over the years, but even to the people that rode it, who called it a hoodoo boat. The Eastland was likened by some to a bicycle, steady at speed, but wobbly at a standstill. Yet, the Eastland kept sailing and carrying passengers by the thousands. Carl Sandburg angrily chalked the whole thing up to the ruthless efficiency of fat cat capitalism, and with a couple of major exceptions, which we'll get to, I have to agree. Sandberg notes that under President Taft and then President Wilson, the U.S. Department of Commerce, which oversaw the inspection of merchant ships, was subject to some extreme regulatory capture. Actually, that's not the right term for it. Regulatory capture refers to the process by which an industry corrupts the agencies charged with policing it. Think of the New York Fed, which basically became an arm of Wall Street in the lead-up to the 2007 financial crisis. When regulators bounce back and forth from the public to the private sector, say, when banking inspectors also get lucrative jobs as bankers, the interests of regulation can become perverted or dampened. But the Department of Commerce wasn't captured by the shipping industry. It preemptively and enthusiastically surrendered. The Secretary of Commerce at the time of the Eastland disaster was William C. Redfield, a Brooklyn iron magnate who was obsessed by a professional philosophy called efficiency. It was efficiency, Redfield held, that gave the United States the economic advantage it needed to succeed in the modern world. And what was efficiency? A lack of stymieing regulations, standards, and laws that might protect workers and consumers at the cost of management and owners. Under Redfield, the United States Steamboat Inspection Service became a farcical rubber stamp. They largely left it to the owners of the boats themselves to determine whether things were safe and signed off on whatever they were told. The logical defense of this total dereliction is as seductive as it is spurious. Because no ship's owner would want their craft to go down, 
they will naturally do the right thing. Stacking onerous inspections and codes onto that already adequate incentive structure will only hurt profits and slow growth. Way back in our second season, we talked about the moral hazard of maritime insurance and how a perverse set of free market incentives caused owners to purposefully send ships out to sink. This problem isn't that problem, for certain. The owners at the St. Joseph Chicago Steamship Company had reason to avoid disaster. But without robust regulation, they were encouraged to play just at the margins of safety. On the morning of July 24, 1915, there was a dangerous circular logic at play on the Chicago River. The Eastland was understood to be top-heavy, and the danger of that was well understood. But it also had some pretty hefty ballast tanks that could be filled on both the port and starboard sides to balance out the roll, or heel, of the passenger weight. Because of those ballast tanks, the risk of the ship turning over was considered small. Therefore, it was deemed safe to load more and more people on board. But, to accommodate the weight of more than 2,500 people on deck, the ballast tanks had to be nearly emptied. The very reason you could put so much weight on top was the same reason you couldn't. When the Eastland began to list to port, Joseph Erickson, the chief engineer, tried to balance her out by introducing water to the ballast tanks, but there were several problems. First of all, water couldn't be transferred from the tanks on one side to the tanks on the other, so he couldn't just move the water that was in the port side to starboard. Instead, he had to empty the port tanks while filling the starboard ones. But he couldn't do that either because the pump that pushed water out of the tanks worked on the same set of pipes that brought water in. You had to choose one or the other, put water in or take it out. On top of that, there were no meters or gauges to indicate how full or empty the tanks were. Erickson had to judge it by feel and memory and time. Worst of all was the way the tanks had been emptied. There were 12 tanks in total, six on one side, six on the other. So you could work out a balance by filling up one tank on one side, two on the other, or what have you. But if instead of filling up one of the tanks entirely, you filled it up halfway, then the water in that tank would slosh around along with the lean of the ship. Instead of stabilizing the issue, it would actually make things worse. Since the tanks had been just mostly emptied in anticipation of a full haul, and since Erickson couldn't properly judge how much water he was putting in, the act of trying to balance the Eastland probably only made things worse. But up top, Captain Peterson didn't know that. He only knew that the ship was leaning and that it had leaned before and that he had a capable engineer below decks who should be able to get things right. This caused him to make his second biggest mistake after the order to release the ballast in the first place. He didn't give the order to abandon until seconds before the Eastland fell over. And that's the whole story. Minus one big irony. The ship was built top-heavy to begin with, converted to passenger work without any real thought or effort, left alone by laissez-faire regulators, 
pushed to its limits by greedy owners and mismanaged by its captain and chief engineer. But even with all that, the Eastland and her passengers would have been fine, if not for a different, more famous maritime disaster. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. On April 10th, 1912, the largest ship in the world, crown jewel of the White Star Line, set out on her maiden journey. Four days later, at 11.40 p.m., the RMS Titanic hit an iceberg. It took just three hours for the Titanic to break up and founder, a pretty brisk pace for a shipwreck of that size, but not so fast that the people on board couldn't have been evacuated. But for many of those on board, there was nowhere to evacuate too. There were 2,435 passengers on board the Titanic that April, and nearly 900 crew. Yet, there were only 20 lifeboats, enough to carry less than 1,200 people under ideal circumstances. And so, more than 1,500 people went down with the ship. The public was rightly shocked. In the aftermath of the Titanic, both the British and the Americans opened inquiries into the cause of the tragedy, and both nations concluded that ships needed more safety measures, and especially that they should all carry lifeboats enough to sustain their maximum capacities. The International Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea passed in 1914 and was followed in America by the Seamen's Act, which came into law March 4, 1915, just three months before the Eastland rolled. In that time, the Eastland was retrofitted to carry a complete retinue of lifeboats on the upper decks. With that added top weight, the Eastland's balance went from delicate to perilous. The nautical term for this is metacentric height, the distance a ship can roll before it won't right itself again. For a ship like the Eastland, you want a metacentric height of maybe three feet. That's three feet that the ship's center can wobble one way or the other and still stay upright. In her early days, the Eastland had a much more narrow metacentric height, maybe one foot, maybe even less, given reports of how it listed before. But after March of 1915, when the lifeboats were added, that height was much reduced. The Eastland would tip over if its center of gravity shifted just four inches. So, of course, it did. No testing was performed beforehand by St. Joseph to determine this. No inspections were made by the Department of Commerce. Nothing of the kind was legally called for, and so nothing of the kind was done. The maximum capacity of the ship somehow barely dipped with the addition of all that weight. The irony of a measure passed in the wake of one tragedy directly contributing to the next tragedy is only surpassed by the even more obvious one. On its side, in 20 feet of water, just a stone's throw from land, no lifeboats were lowered from the Eastland.
Government under-regulation, government over-regulation, negligent captain, maladroit engineer, craven interests, bad design, bad ownership. There was seemingly no wrong way to explain the Eastland disaster. Except for one. In the early days of the inquiries, one theory became quite popular, that there was something beneath the ship, something lying in the muddy river bottom, and that the Eastland had toppled over the obstruction. This idea was of particular interest to Clarence Darrow and his team who were defending Peterson, Erickson, and the four owners from extradition. They asked a diver to return to the scene and check the bottom for objects that might have been to blame. On August 25th, he descended in a diving bell and claimed to have found two pilings which stuck up from the bottom to just 12 and a half feet below the surface, a foot and a half less than the Eastland's draft. What's more, the diver had taken a saw and cut pieces of the pilings out and brought them to the proceedings. It seemed, for a moment, that the cause of the disaster had been discovered. It wasn't to do with ballast or free market greed or lax regulation or lifeboats or anything of the sort. It was the city who was responsible, having failed to keep the riverbed clear. The evidence was right there in the courtroom. And the witness wasn't just an expert, but a beloved hero. He had been there when the Eastland toppled. He'd recovered bodies from the bottom of the river and deep within the hull, anywhere from 100 to 250, depending on when you asked him. His name was William Deneau, but most people called him Frenchy. And he was lying. On cross-examination, Frenchy's testimony fell apart. The altruistic hero of the Eastland was revealed as something of an opportunist. He had demanded payment from the city for his work recovering bodies, and he'd gotten $35 a day from Darrow's defense team to look for foreign objects. He called himself captain, but he didn't have any rank at all. More importantly, the prosecution was able to show that another ship, the SS Neptune, had been moored at the same berth as the Eastland, and the SS Neptune's draft was five feet deeper. Yet nothing had struck its bottom. William Frenchy Deneau lied about his title, and he lied about the pilings. We know he did, in fact, help with the recoveries of bodies from the Eastland, but there's plenty of good reason to doubt the figures of how many. Maybe I'm being nitpicky, Anybody who went underwater that afternoon saw incredible horrors, so why shouldn't he have asked for compensation? And if he exaggerated a bit, so what? He called himself captain. What of it? It was an affectation he probably didn't expect anyone to take literally. So, what's the use of beating up on the credibility of Frenchy Deneau? Well, it's simple, really. Because in November of 1915, two months after he went diving for pilings on behalf of Clarence Darrow, Frenchy Deneau found a 40-foot-long metal submarine in the river, less than 200 yards from where he'd pulled up corpses. Or did he? That's next time, in part two of The Fool Killer, Infinite Distress. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, Kevin McLeod, and the late, great Nan Merriman. I usually don't have a lot of accompanying media or links or sources on this show, mostly because it's a lot of work to put that stuff up without it looking ugly. But at least for this series, I want to make sure you've got plenty to read and look at. So go to www.constantpodcast.com 
to see photos of the Fool Killer and the Eastland. The Eastland Disaster Historical Society is a really tremendous organization that strives to keep this gigantic disaster from totally fading out of memory, and their archives and research were invaluable to me in the making of this episode. Go to eastlanddisaster.org if you want to know more about this pivotal event or to support them in their mission. Special thanks to Bryn Magnus, Kyle Scoggins, and Dirigible for supporting the show. If you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up. For the next two months, as we investigate the Fool Killer, I'll be putting extra details and dovetails onto the secret feed, accessible only to patrons. So, if you want to know more about Carl Sandberg's relationship to the Eastland, or where the term Fool Killer comes from, you can join up now. And please, if you could, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and spread the word. We are a proud member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to the first and oldest continuous podcast, open source with Christopher Lydon, whose latest episode is about the great Bostonian alto sax player Johnny Hodges, who worked the band with Duke Ellington and set the stage for Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, and all the greats thereafter. It's wonderful radio. You should go check it out. Thanks for listening and for supporting the show. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, to whom the people of London donated 8,000 books in the wake of the Great Fire, which were used to establish one of the first public, state-funded, free-borrowing libraries in the United States, within the innards of an old water tower above City Hall. This has been The Constant. The Constant.